my father was called my grandfather was called Rotherpel, and then they changed it. Rotherpel. Yeah. Now, hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast, and I'm here with Steve Rotherpel, no, 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 no. <laughs> better known as Barnet, although across the Atlantic as Barnet, and we are in the Lillian Bayliss slash Khan Lecture Theatre slash Arlington Room Cafe of Sandler's Wells Ballet, which is a great mystery that's just been disclosed to me by Steve of the above. It's uh, a great place to sit and chat and meet, and, uh, and, and sometimes you have a rare treat when some famous ballerina or Star, through. Wow, so we'll hope for some wafting. Now, tell us about the grandparent changing the name. Oh, I didn't, okay, I didn't realise we were going to go into uh, legacy and uh, descendants. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, my, I, my great-grandparents were originally refugees from, uh, I'm not quite sure, either Poland or Russia. <laughs> um, came over during the pogroms, so probably around the turn of the, the last century. Right. Um, the original name, I'm told, was Rothapel, mm-hmm. and like many Jews at the time, they found themselves the subject of um, some pretty gross anti-Semitism. East uh, London was not that much better than Russia. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right, so right, the right, standard right. practice then was to change a name, anglicise it. Yeah. Duck um, and cover. Uh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I, think, I think the story goes that my great-grandfather's first name was Barnett. Oh, really? Um, so okay. they, he just took that as a surname, and uh, it's been that ever since. And in fact, my father's uncle, um, his name, even to the day he died, I think it was Robert Bell, so it still survives um, in some places. But it was, you know, it was a done thing for, for many Jews of that generation. Yeah. Change your name. Think about all those guys running the Hollywood studios, where the studios and they themselves were anglicised in many ways, and a lot of the whole idea, the ideal of an um, Anglosphere and the continuity system of classical Hollywood was about the vast majority of people making and watching these movies trying to be something they weren't. Or, uh, trying to be something they weren't, or, or uh, trying to convince the people around them that they were actually part of their culture, yeah. rather than their own culture. Yeah. There was a, a recent, I'm sure you're aware, a recent program on television about a phenomenal number of um, Jewish producers and directors who created that whole Hollywood phenomenon in the 20s and 30s, which I wasn't aware of. Now, I didn't see the program, but it's an ongoing debate. Uh, one of the interesting things, well, not interesting in the sense of grotesque, about the Los Angeles Times periodically peering into the voting patterns and backgrounds of members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is that they've discovered, guess what, most of the people are male and white. And obviously that doesn't help in terms of diversity and recognising others. What this leads to, thanks to the wonders of the democratic internet, is hundreds of fuckers riding in with anti-Semitic remarks. Yeah. And which is, I mean very interesting when you go online these days, particularly to some of those right-wing blogs. Um, it's one of the things that really bothers me about the rise of online and the so-called commentariat, is that an awful lot of them are people that you really did not want to know existed, <laughs> and makes you very depressed that you realise they now have an outlet for some of their racist, sexist, 
really rather quite nasty views. And, you know, we're all in favour of self-expression and freedom of expression. Um, some of that reveals some quite a lot of nastiness in there. Well, I remember when my first year in university or second year was the first edition of a book that I think came out a few times called The First Cuckoo, or worst of that effect. And it was a selection of letters to be edited to the London Times, many of which were about debates people would have each spring in Britain about, I saw the first cuckoo at X date in Y place, and others saying, no, no, bugger you, I saw it here and there. One of the things about the, the grandeur of that book, whether it was about somewhat trivial things, such as when was the first cuckoo cited, or whether it was about big issues like the future of the British state, was that there was some process of selection that wasn't purely ideological, that meant people who were professionals went about deciding what was interesting or well-written or fascinating or not. More acceptable. And I think about, you know, the, the way the internet has been very important in the spreading of mad ideas about the need not to uh, inoculate babies, yep. children. Yep. I mean, and people who think that, okay, people who know how to set bones should be allowed to go and do it, rather than some madman yeah. saying, well, I know how to do that, won't place the same significance or emphasis on expertise when it comes to politics or economics or culture. Yes, I mean, it's supposed to be a democratisation. Um, I don't know if there's a noun from, from demagoguery that, that, that kind of you can... Demagogorization. <laughs> it's a kind of clumsy way of putting it. Um, I suppose the kind of the kind of thing that worries me is when you get if you go on to I, I, if I'm really really depressed, I want to make myself even more depressed. <laughs> I'll go on to the Guido Fort website. Right. Now, you know, some of the stuff that he writes, you know, not not my politics, but I don't mind writing to people the stuff that he writes. You read some of the comments. Um, here's an interesting thing. Private Eye actually picked up. When Nelson Mandela died, this is a website that prides itself on being open to anything and anyone. It will not censor, it will not close, close you down, it will publish what people can write. They actually closed, they, they published the fact that he died. He managed to find the one photo that he felt he could publish on his website, which was a picture of Mandela with Margaret Thatcher saying something like, now they're both in heaven, I can't quite remember what the caption was. But comments were closed, and I I know why comments were closed. As far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, it's unheard of on that website. It's because some of that hatred that that, that, that Mandela himself provoked in the kinds of people who respond to that website was even unacceptable. And for, uh, the most listeners are outside the UK, so just for some context, Guido Fawkes runs, I guess, the important kind of gingerish blog for the Conservative Party, very important when they are out of power, and representing, I suppose, Eurosceptic or anti-European Union, right-wing, anti-one-nation sentiment within the Tory party in power. Private Eye is a long-standing satirical weekly magazine that I suppose is perhaps right-wing libertarian in certain ways, but argues without fear or favour and is genuinely funny and enjoyable and those of us from different ideological standpoints can appreciate it. Is that a reasonable... I think that's absolutely right. And, and Private Eye tries to publish the kind of inside stories from the political establishment, from the media establishment that other people don't want you to see. And 
is it is it right? I, I don't think it's necessarily that political. Well, Alan Ingham was, was whatever. No, Derek Ingham. What was his name? Ingram. The guy whose dad's money funded it. Richard Ingram. Richard Ingram. Richard Ingram. Was you're quite right. Yeah. Ian Hislop, who's the current editor, would probably argue that he's apolitical. It's yeah. quite difficult to do that. But certainly libertarian. Yeah. Certainly, um, but what they say they do is they hold feet to the flame of anyone yeah. who is kind of establishment and is trying to conceal them. And they've been prepared to take major economic hits, being sued over decades by very powerful people and institutions. So we honour them. In any event, Steve, we recently met, I've been a fan of your work for a very long time, when you gave a wonderful talk, but in a sense told us what we suspected, but it's always good to know that it's true, namely that the British bourgeois media in their coverage of contentious issues like the, the actual composition of the British population in terms of who's a single mom and how many there are and how many Muslims there are and so on, massively ups the ante in numbers and percentages compared to the reality. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this, that particular um, aspect of, of that talk came out of an absolutely fascinating graph that I tweeted. I'm, I'm new on Twitter, I have to say. I'm a Twitter newbie. Uh, I, social <laughs> media is not my thing. Um, and I think I've, I've actually done about 220 tweets. Anyway, I tweeted this thing, this graph, and what it shows is the actual proportion of minority groups that make up the population of the UK. So, um, you ask someone, what proportion of the UK population do you think are Muslim? The yeah. actual figure is something like, I forget, it's about 3 or 4%. Then you say, um, another example, what proportion of under 16 girls have had a Again, the actual figure is 0.5%. The answers that you get, and this was a survey that was done, a representative survey of the British population. So what you're getting is people's unadulterated opinion of what the makeup of the UK population is. And what it found was, compared to the 3% of the population that are Muslim, people were reckoning on something like 25 or 30%. They were reckoning that a third of teenage girls under 16 had had when you look at the makeup of those people, predominantly they come from those who are reading the tabloid newspapers of this country. Can you explain what tabloid I'll means? I'll explain in, what tabloid means. Yeah, it didn't occur to me I said that. Yeah. that um, almost uniquely throughout the world, with the possible exception of Japan, in the UK we have a very strong national newspaper circulation. We have 11 national newspapers that are, are now available. Of those, uh, about half, four or five, are populist, mass-selling newspapers. So they're in the, the, the tabloid format, they're, they're sort of small, uh, kind of, uh, say, double-A size. They're not, they're not so called broadsheet. Yeah. But more importantly than what they look like, they're very populist in their approach. They sell on scandal, celebrity, gossip, sensationalism. Um, with one exception, which is the, the, the Daily Mirror and the Sunday Mirror, which has been going for decades, they are almost all right-wing. And the one people in the US would know is the Daily Mail, which is a huge online success. Uh, huge thing. online presence. But, but different there from here in that it's only celebrity there online, or is it's got a profoundly political, economic perspective here, doesn't and it? And actually, even in the States, if you have a look at the Mail online, 
instead of having a look at that, that, that the right-hand side, which is the sort of what attracts people, which is the celebrity stories, have a look at some of the political stories in the middle. It's worth reading because you will see a, a, a very clear right-wing bias around issues like immigration, anti-immigration, around Europe, very anti-EU, um, uh, around welfare, very uh, anti-benefits. There will be plenty of stories, for example, scrounging asylum seekers. I've put those words in inverted commas. Um, we know that they send their journalists out to look for, specifically to look for, Romanian or Bulgarians who've come over to the UK, very often impoverished, looking for work which they send back to their relatives at home, and they will try to find them, they will call them asylum seekers, they'll try to find those that are maybe have, um, have lost their jobs or aren't in work, so they're claiming benefits, and they will build a narrative. There's a very clever way in which that newspaper builds a narrative of British society, which is we have, all the, we have this sort of uh, um, clump of people who are uh, parasites and we have to stop feeding them, we have to stop giving them the benefits. And this notion of benefit Britain is, 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 is a very powerful element of, of their narrative. So that's the male, but we also have the, 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 the Sun and the News of well, the Sun and the Sun on Sunday, both owned by Rupert Murdoch. Um, and the Express and the, Davis, uh, and the Sunday Express, owned by a man named Richard Desmond, who also has a, a series of, of now pornographic TV channels. Um, all of them essentially having a, a pretty standardised right-wing view of the world. And clearly they convey... We, we get onto issues now about the extent to which people are influenced, directly influenced by what they read in the newspaper. And I'm not suggesting there is a linear um, connection between read A so you believe A. But I think there is a drip drip effect. It's a drip drip effect that you're reading these stories, if you're a reader of these newspapers, day in, day out, immigrants, foreigners coming in, taking jobs, taking benefits. Um, the, um, there are <coughs> laws which are to, to, to start in Brussels and come from the EU, which apparently constrain what we as Brits can do. Um, that, that kind of narrative in the end has, a, has an effect. And I think that's, that is one of the problems that we face, in my view, in this country, with a very strongly rooted, deep-seated national press, which I think has ultimately quite a poisonous effect on the national narrative. And you're thinking here specifically of the tabloids, which in a sense are addressing the working class across the ideological spectrum. What about the so-called broadsheets, the quality press, if you like, the equivalents of the New York Times, um, by which I mean the Daily Tory Graph, or to give it its typographical error name, the Daily Telegraph, the Groniad, the um, London Times. I think, actually, if you look at the, the, the so-called broadsheets, and you're right, they are... Remember, these are minority circulation newspapers. Yeah. Um, even the right-wing ones, they're still predominantly right-wing. So the Telegraph has, a very, again, a very right-wing view of the world. Um, and certainly the Times, particularly under Murdoch, um, is, is, is clearly right of centre. What they do tend to do is to allow a greater diversity of opinion and comment within their, within their, their newspapers. So they're not quite as single-mindedly yeah. 
uh, right wing or paintings of a one dimensional picture of life in Britain. Um, but they are minority enterprises. So, what about if Desmond or Murdoch or any of these other mad bastards say to you, We're giving working people what they want? You might like it. Itself. Yes, it's very true. I mean, that is an interesting, and of course, that's exactly what they do. It's, if you like, the free market argument's dream. It's saying, well, hang on a minute. If you take the highest selling newspaper in this country, which is the Sun, the circulation's going down, but it's still read by four to five million people. Now, that is uh, about a tenth of the adult population in this country. Actually, it's probably, probably about an eighth. So great. Now, that's a lot of people and they, the argument is who are you to say what these yeah. people ought to be reading if that's what they want to read it's up to them what uh, and, and it, is, it is quite a powerful argument it is a, a classic case if you like of packaging um, celebrity gossip sensationalism the kind of things which have always sold mm. this, is not, this isn't being paternalistic yeah, it goes back to public hangings and the screeds written about the viewing of public hangings in London or New York or Paris, and, doesn't it? And, and yeah. if you go back to you know, 18th century, 19th century, what were the, the kind of free sheets in the publications that yeah. people loved to read? It was about Jack the Ripper, and it was about the crimes that were unsolved, and the more gruesome, frankly, the better. Yeah. So what they're doing is, is, is presenting that. That's the news diet, by and large. And within that, there is this sort of closeted, um, sort of secreted vision, which is this sort of right-wing political view. There is not a great deal of politics there, but the headline stories, the editorials, the two, three pages that are devoted to politics or economics or social views, if you like, um, social stories, uh, are, are, are predominantly right wing. Now, you, you sort of get into questions here about false consciousness and, and uh, are we, you know, am I trying to say that this is a, a kind of Trojan horses for a right wing view of the world? I'm, I'm, I'm not sufficiently immersed in Marxist thinking to believe that that's you know, this, this kind of indoctrination, false consciousness theory. But I do think there is a case for saying that this kind of populist view that pushed and sold by the British tabloid market um, is actually selling a view of Britain which is damaging to itself. Um, I don't believe that the people who read those, well we know actually, we know through social surveys that the people who read The Sun are not all conservative thinking, conservative voting readers. Actually most of them vote Labour. They don't necessarily think like socialists but most of them uh, over the last two or three elections have not vote Labour. But I think it does affect the, 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 the national view of the world and, 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 and the, the view that Britons have of themselves and of the country in a way that is actually potentially quite damaging. Uh, again, for you know, most of the listeners to this thing are from outside this country. And obviously these things vary, as you know, as an internationalist from place to place. But the focus on newspapers in politics in Britain is quite extraordinary, it seems to me, because there are these two narratives that run alongside one another that really meet. One is, the days of newspaper influence are over. It doesn't matter anymore at all. And the other is, if I'm writing a policy document for the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, or the Conservatives, the only thing I think about is how it will be covered in either 
the broadsheets or the tabloids by the best-selling and most influential people. You're absolutely right, and it, it, it is incredibly difficult to convey precisely that tension to any international audience. Mm. So I've, I've given papers in, in, in uh, other European countries, for example, where their model of the print media and, and actually the broadcast media is almost exclusively regional. So, you know, you go to France and the biggest selling newspaper is France Sud-Ouest, the regional newspaper. Same thing in Germany, same thing in Italy. It's very unusual for a national press to have such um, national penetration. And certainly not in America, where obviously, you know, the big... big obviously, you, you'll get the New York Times, the Washington Post, and that's the LA Times in most states. But most people newspapers that are relevant. Local papers. Although the national coverage will come from the New York Times. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But with that exception, um, you don't have that same level of influence from the national press. But that leads on to your second point, which is absolutely right. How is it in a world where everyone is panicking about plummeting circulations and we're told that business models are going pear-shaped and some American academic has predicted that the last newspaper world presses in 2027 or whatever it is, I can't. There's a precise date, which is a great way if you're an academic of having, you know, getting your name out there. It's it's nonsense. It's bollocks as far as I'm. It'll be on your tombstone, but it, it, yeah, it's still bollocks. For a moment, but, but you will be you will have your five minutes of academic fame. Uh, I think it's nonsense. Um, it, it is absolutely true. The newspapers in their hard copy form are losing that purchase, and they are becoming much more difficult to sustain in economic terms. Nevertheless, particularly in the UK, if you look at the big newspaper groups, Murdoch's, what is now called News UK, the Telegraph Group, which is owned by a very secretive couple called the Barclay Brothers, who live in a tax haven somewhere else. Well, the basically UK. the Koch Brothers of the, the, the United Kingdom. Koch Brothers, absolutely. That's exactly what they are. Desmond, who is, as I say, a sort of... A Porn magnate. Pornography magnate. Um, <laughs> And, and Associated Newspapers, which is the mail, which is um, Lord Rothermere, who also lives in a tax haven. I, I think all his taxes, he's got a castle in France. And as one does. As one does, absolutely, <laughs> if you're a British newspaper owner. You look at them, those, particularly those four uh, conglomerates, they're all making money hand over fist. They are, they, they are not losing money. They are profitable. So when we talk about plummeting newspaper circulations, it is true that... Circulations are going down, but the business model is not yet bust. And to go back to your very first point, these are still phenomenally powerful reference points for policymakers in this country, whether of the left or of the right. They care about what the newspapers tomorrow are going to say about them. And that, for decades, that has had a material effect on British policymakers. I've been thinking about this in the context of Ed Miliband, who is the leader of the Labour Party, the opposition party here in the UK, whose dad, Ralph Miliband, was a big influence on me and actually talked with my old man, was an important Marxist theorist. One of these tabloids recently argued that Ralph was a traitor, essentially. Ralph Miliband, for people outside Britain, was a Jewish refugee from the Nazis who was also a war hero for the British. And Ed Miliband stood up, as did David Miliband, his brother, in defense of their father and against this monstrousness. But they're all very happy to embrace these horrible anti-immigrant policies. Uh, 
you know, that they think these newspapers will endorse. And, and partly because the newspapers, and, by, and with that, I, I, the newspapers, the Mirror, even the Independent and the Guardian, uh, are tending to buy into this, 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 this constant message that, quote, the country isn't big enough, we don't have room, there, is, there are already too many people here. Some people actually talk as if Britain is a sort of third world developing nation which is going short of food and, and the indigenous population are actually going to starve if we allow any more of these horrible Romanians or Bulgarians or whatever to, to cross over. There was a, just for the sake, again, for the sake of the international audience, from the 1st of January this year, for the first time, the uh, uh, residents of two particular um, Eastern European countries, Bulgaria and Romania, were allowed to, under the rules of, of EU membership, were allowed to come into Britain and seek work, uh, and in fact claim benefits if they don't. Um, and that is the nature of the EU, that is part of Labour being um, mobile. Um, that the male and the son were absolutely desperate to find examples of those people coming over here. And on the 1st of January, um, at least one of those newspapers had someone stationed at the airport. At the airport. <laughs> and, and they were, they were <laughs> desperate. There was one poor chap on a plane load, which consisted of, I think there were, on a plane load of 250, there were 180 returning Romanians. Uh, who've lived there here all their lives. There were 40 who were coming home from a holiday, or the other way around. They discovered one, one poor Romanian, who had actually decided to come over and look for work, and found work, and was in a job. But because they targeted this one guy in the Daily Mail, he probably lost his job. Uh, and that's a true story. And, and, and in, in the end, he did find another job. But it is a classic example of the victimization approach. Yeah these newspapers use to try and demonstrate that their view of the world is the correct one, and to try and inculcate that view of the world in other people. Um, so going back to the Miliband story, I mean, that was, that was a Daily Mail so-called expose, and they justified it on the basis that to understand Ed Miliband, who wants to be Prime Minister, you have to understand his father, and his father was in their view, a Marxist, which made him an enemy of the country. Um, uh, and to be fair, it, it enraged even uh, many people on the right. Oh, lots of Tories jumped up and down about it. Wonderfully, actually. They, they were did. good. They did. They were good. Pretty weasel words, I have to say, from the Prime Minister, who said something like, yes, if it was my father who was being proven in this way, I wouldn't be happy either. But maybe that's as much as you can expect from it. So, this is David Cameron, a monster. Yes, quite, quite. So in terms of how this relates to your research right now, Steve, uh, as I mentioned, you're somebody who's done a great deal of work about public policy in the media, about journalism, but also about this idea of what a public sphere might be in the context of deregulated broadcasting, deregulated media more generally, new technologies and so on. So tell us a bit about what you're up to now and roundabout now and how people can perhaps find some of that work. Um, well, I, I mean, I suppose 
it's a long time since I've actually reflected on my own work. If there is a if there is a strand going through it, going back to the, the book on sport that you mentioned earlier, nineteen ninety British Film Institute, very first book that I wrote on television and sport. Um, the theme I think that runs through it is that actually, um, in within the media sphere, and particularly within a country like the UK, which is quite um, top down, quite national in its approach to media. It is essential to have some kind of regulatory apparatus or regulatory structure in order to uh, both create and then sustain a genuine public sphere, a genuinely open and genuinely democratic public sphere. Um, that's sometimes quite a difficult argument to, to sustain in America. Um, but interestingly, I mean, the, the most recent book I wrote was on television journalism. What's it called? It's called The Rise and Fall of Television Journalism. Um, and I actually specifically make comparisons between the UK and the US in both the quality <coughs> and the nature of television journalism. Um, and I, I looked at television partly because um, it's still the medium where most people say they get their news from. That's where most people understand their journalism from. And partly because I think it still carries an innate power um, for all sorts of reasons. The, the audiovisual nature of the fact that it's in people's living rooms, um, despite the rise of social media. Unlike newspapers, I think television is much less effective, both economically and uh, in terms of audience reception, by the rise of social media. So it's very powerful in conveying knowledge, information, a sense of the world out there. How do you? create a television environment which um, uh, which encapsulates the best um, both uh, ethical approach um, to, to journalism. By ethical I mean the, the, the broadest possible sense of what journalism tries to do. Um, I suppose it's a fairly sort of utilitarian approach but if the, the, the ideals of journalism in a public sphere is to create a more informed citizenry, a more engaged citizenry, uh, a citizenry which is more critical, which understands the issues around it and, and, and participates in trying to do something about it. Yeah. Um, if you take that sort of normative idealistic view of what journalism should try and do and you and should aspire to. How do you create a television environment that actually does that? Um, and I think by and large, partly by accident through the BBC, partly through uh, the kinds of people who actually decided to become television journalists in the UK, what we have done, uh, certainly up until 10 years ago, is to create the right sort of environment for the best broadcast journalists to flourish. And what I tried to do in the book is to contrast that with America, not in any kind of sort of superior sense or elitist sense, but to say, here is a country in the US where the notion of regulation doesn't really exist, where it's regarded as uh, anathema, where the free market is deterministic. If you, whatever you do, it's the, the old um, FCC adage, um, the, the, public's interest is the public interest, so you leave it to the public, the market will decide. Uh, and to say, well, what you've ended up with is a television environment 
where you have the pursuit of crime stories, the pursuit of sensationalism, the pursuit of celebrity stories, at the expense of more thoughtful, more engaged, and a more internationalist approach to television news. So, one thing most people are agreed on is that in America, you will not find international stories on American television because the American electorate apparently aren't What Steve's alluding to is the Federal Communications Commission's notorious first Reagan chair, Mark Fowler. Thank you. Uh, who, first of all, said television is just a toaster with pictures and yep. therefore in need of no regulation other than a guarantee that it won't blow up yep. or burn anybody. And secondly, that the public interest, which is the crucial component of the enabling legislation that constructed the Federal Radio Commission, the predecessor of the FCC, and it still is important, namely that the public interest should be addressed and engaged and so on. What Fowler did was to turn this into the, federal, the public interest is not interest of the public, i.e., it's a purely bums-on-seats, market-oriented understanding rather than one that says how do you form a public, how do you understand a public, how do you measure a public, and what are the things that the common wheel should consider as part of its past, its present, and its future. And that should not only be what entertains it, but should be what instructs and informs and educates it. And some of the Rethian uplift of the ethos of the BBC, which it's easy to denigrate as condescending, patronising, and so on, captures something beyond that, even as it always considered entertainment functions to matter a very great deal. Absolutely. And I think actually that, that brings us on very nicely to the, the whole notion of public service, because there is a kind of conception, I think particularly in America, that when you talk about public service broadcasting, actually what that means is Rethian. It means that kind of paternalistic, top-down, you may not know what you want, but we're going to give it to you. And of course, the old reading tradition was, we'll start you off with the sort of the light program, with some light music, and then we'll gradually lift you on to the, the great classical composers. I mean, this is Sir John Reith, who was, the, whom I was referring to earlier, Steve's now talking about, who was the first director general of the BBC. And, and is generally regarded as the, the, the father of public service broadcasting. One of the things that I've tried to do, not just me, others as well, but what I, one of the themes of my work is to try and reimagine mm. The notion of public service broadcasting for the 21st century, and to say actually, yes, it was something that started under a very paternalistic regime in the 1920s and 1930s, but a hundred years later, there is a it has evolved into something different, but still very relevant to notions of the public sphere. Mm. So, and if we go back to the notion of television journalism, what does it mean? It means providing a space, a guaranteed space. Uh, within even commercial broadcasters, where people are being asked to make programs, to find stories, and to make them accessible, but to make them relevant to people's everyday lives. Not just, we talk about celebrity stories, not just the kinds of things that you're interested in because it's, um, it's fun to read about other people, but stories about uh, policy issues, politics, whether it be about uh, immigration, nature of the economy, whatever. But these are stories that can and should engage large numbers of people through the medium of television, not in a way that's talking down to them, but says, we want to bring you in to a public sphere which is yours, not ours. Now, can I ask you about that in the context of sports, Steve? Because only today I received 
as did many of us, a communication from Ofcom, which the Office of Communications, about this quite interesting, to my way of thinking, bizarre practice here in the UK of determining which particular sports events are of national, sub-national, cosmopolitan, universal <laughs> significance, such that they should not be siphoned off, the term used here, onto uh, what they call pay television here, satellite or cable, but should be available for terrestrial broadcasters, which also means public broadcasters here, which isn't just the BBC, it's ITV, it's Channel 4, it's Channel 5, they're all public broadcasters. Given that you wrote this book that I keep wanting you to talk about on sports and TV quarter of a century ago, sports are often thought of as the acme of you know, bread and circuses and distracting people from the real business of the public sphere, and yet they continue to be very important parts of public policy in this country and in many other countries, in fact, including the United States, when it comes to certain kinds of, you can call it protectionist, if you want, cultural policies of broadcasting. In the United States, for example, the reason why the National Football League doesn't play on Saturday is because it's against the law for it to do so, as passed by Congress. And the reason it's against the law is so that college football can get television coverage on Saturdays, guaranteed on the major networks, without competition from the pros. This goes back 50 years. It predates all this siphoning crap that we have here. So it's not as though it's just US versus the UK, but something about sport that's quite interesting. I think I'm right in saying that there's another aspect of federal law in the US under which the NFL... Um, uh, now, I need to get this right. You'll, you'll know more about this than me. And this goes back to the, the, the 30s or 40s. The NFL is uniquely allowed uh, to make... It's to do with competition law. I can't quite remember. There are some exemptions to competition law that apply to the major leagues. Yeah. That, it, that allow them to collude. In selling the rights. In selling their in rights. Not only selling rights, but they can collude in terms of who will be allowed to compete. So when you decide to have an expansion team, imagine if you were a car company in the United States. Yeah. If you were Ford or G GM, John Motors, and you said, actually, fuck it. We don't want any more of you fuckers trying to undercut us. There are going to be no more car manufacturers and we're going to say why. Right. There's an antitrust exemption that permits major league teams to say, we'll have another one over here in this part of the country. That's we'll allow that. And they can meet and talk about who's going to do what all the time. There's no relegation in US pro sports, not yeah. like in Britain. Yeah. If you're no good at rugby or football, um, you're out. You get down. Sorry, you get, you're down. You down. Uh, Forget right. it. Quite you're right. out. Quite right. And you're absolutely right. And in terms of television rights, part of that exemption is they are uniquely allowed to collude to sell their rights collectively to television stations. Now that's, I mean, you, you talk about interventions in cultural policy. Obviously, I think you're absolutely right that as far as I'm concerned, sport is an integral part of the public sphere. It's, it's, it's part of national identity. It's, it, it speaks to all sorts of, of our, our kind of visceral desire to be part of something. Um, whether it's you know your, your, your local football team, your national team, whatever. One of the interventions in the UK is, and this was this started to become particularly relevant in 1990, which is when my book was published, which was the year after Rupert Murdoch's Sky Television started broadcasting. Now, it, it's it's for an American audience, it's probably worth saying that one of the things that Sky, which is now called 
B Sky B, British Sky Broadcasting, is phenomenally successful in economic terms. It's, it's in about 10 million households out of 25 million. You can only get it on subscription, but it's sold into those homes on the back of access, unique, exclusive access to premium rate sports. To Premier League, most essentially. And it's what football. Murdoch called battering ram. Called it, it? Battering, battering ram. Absolutely. Yeah. And he paid what was at the time regarded as a ludicrous amount of money to get those rights exclusively. And it meant for the first time in British history that those matches could not be shown, were not being shown live on what we call free-to-air television. In other words, if you say, you say the public service channels, whether they be the BBC or commercial channels. And the, the policy intervention which arose from that was that the government started to think about other kinds of exclusive sport, premium rate sport, which were part of the national identity. The Football World Cup, the Olympics, uh, we have this international uh, um, rugby tournament called the, what is now the Six Nations Tournament. Cricket, the ashes between Australia and England. Although, except they were not. Accepted. Oh, they weren't? Okay. Not okay. Right. Which means uh, that I, for example, because I don't have Sky, have not watched uh, Ashes test matches for the last five or six years. So these are cricket games, long five-day games for England and Australia that go on endlessly, but are really crucial parts, certainly of white English masculinity and white Australian masculinity, and not only those types of masculinity. I, I, I'm not even sure I'd say masculinity. I'm certainly male. Uh, sorry, I, I wouldn't say... Not sure about white. I mean, one of the things that Britain did do was export the game to the Caribbean yeah. and the Asian subcontinent. Yeah. So I think you know, there are very large Asian communities in the UK, for example, who will um, go to international cricket matches, uh, whether they're supporting India or Pakistan or, or, or England. Um, so there is a legacy there, a sure, thing, sure. a colonial legacy, yeah. um, which is not necessarily all bad. But going back to the sports issue, what the uh, the, the, the government did do is to say there are certain sporting events which are so much part of the national identity we cannot allow them to be only available mm, mm. to people who can afford or are willing to pay um, and just to, to put this in perspective in the UK we pay £142 I think it is now um, which roughly in my head about $200 a year but for the BBC licence fee so you have to pay that. As, it's a rent to the government for owning a colour television set. Correct. And it's compulsory. So it's regarded as a, as a sort of a poll tax. It's a flat rate tax for watching television. All of that money goes to the BBC. By comparison, if you want to subscribe to Sky's sports channels, which is where you will now see all the Premier League, well, the vast majority of the Premier League matches, uh, all the uh, international cricket matches, most of the international tennis matches, the uh, the Grand Slam, uh, except for Wimbledon, I think the Australian Open, and several other uh, rugby golf as well. Uh, that will cost you the, the, the calculation of my head. It's about fifty pounds a month, so we're talking about six hundred a year. Uh, six hundred a year, so nine hundred dollars a year. Um, getting up for nine hundred dollars a year. So four or five times the cost of the license yeah. fee, on top of the money that you would have to pay for the, um, the license fee as well. Yeah. And a lot of people can't afford it, and a lot of people don't aren't, aren't willing to pay that, that amount to subscribe. 
and therefore won't have access to those sporting events. Mm -hmm. So what the government said is there are some events which have to be available on free-to-air television. It doesn't matter if it's commercial television. It could be ITV. ITV is the, the, the biggest free-to-air commercial service in the country. It could be on Channel 4, which is a more minority commercial channel, but it has to be on a channel that is freely available to the whole country. Why don't you have Sky? I would probably end up watching it too much. <laughs> actually, to ah, me, well, it started with it started with an objection. Actually, I, I have Virgin Media, which is my is a cable subscription channel. Uh, partly, it's the expense; it's a lot of money. Yes, 50, 60 pounds a month is a lot of money just to watch sport. I like my football, so I would probably end up watching it. And I actually don't like the idea of giving that money to Murdoch simply to have access to stuff that he has kind of screwed. Other people out of And we do get now a match of the day a couple of days a week on the BBC where you see all the goals. The highlights. You get the highlights on the BBC. So, you know, for, for your average sports fan, that's probably. And you can also, if you want to watch a match, you go down to the local pub because they do deals with um, you know, local pubs who have Sky on the big screens. So that's become it's an interesting feature of the last 25 years of uh, soccer in this country is that the pubs have become much more of a focal point on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon for watching a, a, a big football match. Now, in terms of this threshold argument that sports are part of the public sphere, they are part of national identity, do you accept that uh, on its face value? I completely accept that. If you think back to the last Olympics, the 2012 Olympics, okay, it was in London, so it's a bit special, but Imagine that Sky, the only ones who could afford it really, had done a deal with the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, uh, who were desperate for as much money as they could get, to say, we're going to have exclusive rights to all the Olympic coverage. Mm. The sense of excitement that was generated in the UK over some of those athletics events, um, the, the, over, over Jessica Ennis, over Mo Farah, the, 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 the big events, the big winners, which created a huge buzz within Britain. And it, it, it was, you know, we talk about water cooler moments, mm. and I think that's the mm. same expression in the States. Increasingly few of them as, as big audiences diminish, but there are still some of those moments that bring nations together. Um, and I don't think they, they're not particularly bourgeois moments, they're not particularly class-based at all. They are genuine moments where you will stand at a bus stop, you'll go to a supermarket, and you will fill up your car with petrol in a garage. It doesn't matter who you're with, people will be talking about it. And you'll get into conversation with the most unlikely people about the fantastic event that you all witnessed on television last night. That is something that is, uh, I think, an integral part of any national culture. Um, and it's, um, you know, I don't think it's any less true in the US, in France, in Australia, in India than it is in, uh, in the UK. Now, Steve, uh, we've got about a quarter of an hour left on my schedule. In terms of your timing, how are you going? Uh, when do you need to go? Do you need to go now? No. no I how long have you got? Yeah, ten you got, minutes, got ten, ten minutes. Ten minutes. I wondered if we could go back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary, and talk a bit about times, things you did before you were an academic, because it's not going to be too difficult for people to follow your career 
through publications, and you've already mentioned some of those. But I think I'm right in saying that you worked at the Broadcasting Research Unit. And I wondered if you could talk about what, not necessarily the gossip of that unit, though you're welcome to, should you so wish, but rather what research within regulation did in those days, what it was supposed to do, and what it does today. That's a really interesting question. That's a really interesting question. Let me just, I came, I'll talk about what the broadcasting research unit was in a minute. I came to it through a consumer research background. Oh, did you? Okay. So my background was actually in social research, social science. I'm a sociologist by training. Mm. Um, but very much from uh, sort of um, what my, my, some of my former colleagues critically call a, a, a much too positivist perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I, I have time for kind of, you know, quantified approach to social science. Mm. But, so that was my background. I, and I was at, at Consumers Association, which is, uh, publishes a magazine called Which, which I think in the US was Consumer Reports. I don't know if it's still going. That was my background, very much kind of consumer, um, consumer affairs. But through that, I just became fascinated by the whole area of broadcasting for all sorts of reasons, not least because I was at LSE and I studied... London at, School of Economics, London School of Economics and Political I, Science, where Ralph Miliband taught. He, he taught and I, was, I studied under a, um, a very influential woman called Hilda Himmelweit, mm -hmm. who was one of the great social psychologists. Um, and did TV stuff. And wrote, wrote a seminal book called Television in the Child, yeah. looking at the impact of, 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 tele, of television on children as television became a mass media, and at the time it was a, a classic of its kind, because there was only one moment in history when TV started to become a mass media product, mm -hmm. product uh, and she captured that. So I, I got into it through uh, studying at LSE, went to which, and, and but by that time I was already into it. And there was a moment in, in the 80s, um, just as in America it was sort of captured by the Reaganite philosophy, in the UK we were captured by the Thatcherite philosophy. And one of the things that that Thatcher philosophy wanted to do during the 80s was to apply itself to the whole area of broadcasting, which for me was a, a marvellous example of, of uh, how a great invention, the BBC, um, actually provided the country with a real public space, a non-commodified public space. Uh, and she was intent um, and started a commission with this idea of imposing advertising. This is the Peacock report. She created, yeah, she created this committee headed by a well-known right-wing economist called Alan Peacock. Mm. To, and, and the idea of that commission was quite clearly to conclude <laughs> that BBC should take advertising. And at that point, I was sort of headhunting. I, I went for a job at the Broadcasting Research Unit, which was funded partly by the BBC, partly by uh, public service commercial channels, and partly by the BFI, the British Film Institute, um, to look much more critically at that whole commission, to do some research, partly with the aim of saying, actually, this is going to work. Um, so it was, it was kind of preconditioned research, but nevertheless, it was research on, uh, um, on an international level. We went to Canada, we went to Australia, we went to New Zealand, we went to Germany to look at international comparisons. What happens when you commercialize and commodify mm. a, a, an existing broadcasting structure? Um, now, I'm not saying that we were influential uh, in, in, in 
defeating the Peacock proposals, actually there was a whole different political dynamic going on. Mm -hmm. In the end, they didn't recommend advertising on the BBC, but they recommended a whole series of uh, deregulatory measures. And what the Broadcasting Research Unit did in the five years I was there, from 1985 to 1990, if you like, the, the key Thatcherite period, was to try and take a, a really um, rigorous, empirical, critical view at that political uh, philosophy which embraced, which was then embracing deregulation, liberal economic theory, and saying the only way that you can create real, uh, real competition and real benefit, public benefit, is through deregulation and, uh, and free markets. So the idea then was to apply that critical approach, mm. critical perspective, <coughs> regulatory perspective, to the whole area of, of, of yeah. broadcasting, and. It was, I mean, the Broadcasting Research Unit was remarkable in the sense that it was literally four of us. Who were the people that were? It was headed by, by Michael Tracy, who is now at um, Denver. Denver, thank you. Um, Colorado. Uh, and he's been there for some time. Um, and uh, apart from him, there was, there was David Doherty, who is now uh, in doing something in higher education. David Morrison, who is at Leeds. Uh, and myself, I mean, we were essentially the four. I mean, there, are, there were other people who came and went. Howard Tumble was one. Uh, Jeanette Steemers, who is now a colleague of mine at Westminster, was another one. But essentially, for those five years, there was um, you know, four of us trying to create this body of work, which was which standed in as a counterpoint to the prevailing political philosophy. Um, and it's, I find it remarkable that it is still that body of work is still quoted. Um, I find students still we produced a book called The Principles of Public Service Broadcasting, uh, a tiny, tiny booklet, A5, it wasn't a book, it's a booklet, and it's still being quoted as a core set of underlying principles for the, the, the notion of public service broadcasting. Um, it was a very interesting time, and I think there is a sort of a legacy to that work, which even in the era which we haven't really talked about, the era of social media, the era of fragmentation, so-called fragmentation. I think this is overplayed, vastly overplayed. Um, I think still has some resonance. And Ofcom has a few more people working for it than before, doing research. Uh, yeah, Ofcom, I mean, I think Ofcom is actually a really good example of a regulatory philosophy which says, and, and even this conservative, well, we now have a coalition government, but even the conservatives within our coalition government have accepted, I think, sometimes reluctantly, that there is a place for intelligent regulation. Yeah. There's a really good book, which actually had uh, published, I think, three years ago, uh, in America, by Robert Reich, who was Clinton's Labour Secretary. Secretary, now professor at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know it, called Super Capitalism. Mm -hmm. and, and he doesn't mention broadcasting, doesn't mention telecoms at all. Uh, he, he, he simply says, there is this, we have now reached a point within the development of capitalism where it is essential, and he's saying this in an American context, it is essential that you have a, regularly, a series of regulatory mechanisms to protect the public interest. And he talks about health, he talks about transport, um, he talks about the environment, and he talks about the way in which the, 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 the direction um, of capitalism, which he calls super capitalism, is taking it 
without these interventions, these regulatory interventions, mm. will inevitably result in detriment, public interest detriment, consumer detriment, and therefore you need to have these series of interventions. And I think you know, that's, that, if you like, is the sort of the, uh, the timeline of what we've tried to do with some of this, this sort of regulatory research in the UK applied to the media sphere. Well, Steve Barnett, thank you very much. I know that it's time for you to race off to the next of your many engagements. Um, I wonder if I can extract from you an undertaking to return to the pub to talk more about so-called or actual social media. I, I, well, I think that's a very interesting discussion to have. I'd be delighted. All right. Cheers. Many thanks.